Amen. Last week we had such an amazing weekend. It was kind of a spirit uh, encouraged. How many enjoyed last Sunday when we talked about the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit, experiencing the Holy Spirit in our lives? You know, it's interesting. We're going to actually, this is part two in some ways. And you'll see how, because last week it was about the Spirit and how He's powered, the Spirit and how He gives boldness and how He releases us to share our faith. But how many know that if we don't do it in a loving way, it's all for nothing? And so the Spirit of God, listen to what Romans says, Paul writing to the book of Romans, to the Roman church in the book of Romans. He said, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love of God that's going to come and fill our hearts, how the Spirit of God. You know why? Because think about God is love. And when God fills us with his Spirit, we're going to be full of love. What do you think of that one? So that's what we're going to focus on. How many know we have to open our hearts to this? We have to say, Lord, you know what? I think what happens in life is we allow a lot of bad experiences to damage our hearts. Anybody want to argue that? No, it happens, doesn't it? And so then we, then we become defensive and we become broken and, you know, we're not as loving as we could be. You know, a little child, they don't have all those issues. They just run and give you a hug, right? You know, but when we get older, we get all of these baggage things going on in our lives. Let's pray today that all the baggage would drop and God's spirit would fall and we'd be full of his love. What do you think would happen in our homes if that happened? What do you think would happen, you know, where we work in our schools, the hospital and the city, you know, hall and all these places where we're working, all of a sudden God's love begins to permeate those environments through you and me. What kind of an impact is that going to have? Let's pray. Yeah, amazing. That's right, Kevin. Amazing. Let's pray. Father, we just want to open our hearts today. We're going to hear your voice speaking into our innermost being, but Lord, we don't want to shut you out. We want to hear your voice. Lord, we want to invite you this morning for your spirit to come and speak into our lives and help us to gain that understanding that will encourage us to walk in love, to be a person who is filled with your spirit, and the fruit of that spirit is love. And we just thank you for that. And I pray, Father, that uh, homes will be healed today. I pray that understandings will be changed today. I pray, Father, that forgiveness would flow today. I pray that grace would abound today and where evil seems to be prevailing, maybe in our own hearts or in the surrounding areas of our community, I pray that good and love would shatter the evil in our community, in our province, in our nation, and around our world. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Many of you probably know the name Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson pastored a church in Maryland for almost 30 years, and then he went and taught at Regent College in Vancouver. But while he was a pastor, you know, he was actually a biblical scholar, and he was actually trying to help people understand the Bible in its, in its you know, from the early translation, the language, Hebrew, Greek. But he recognized that a lot of times we lose a sense of the, what we'll call the colloquialism or the, the reality of how people speak today. And so he began to share with people, this is what 
you know, the Bible would sound like in everyday language. And then we got a translation called the message. Some of you have probably used it. And sometimes it hits you between the eyes because that's the way we talk. And that's the way God wants to communicate. He's trying to get through to us. And so he shares a story in his pastoral ministry where he is trying to be like a spiritual father, spiritual director. And he tells of this man named Warren who shared that he wasn't experiencing what he observed in many other Christians' life. And over the years, I've run into people who felt this way, you know. Uh, and they keep quiet about it, but they, 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 there's just something, they feel that there's wrong something inside of them. They're saying there's something missing in my life. And he, he basically shared with his pastor, who was Eugene Peterson, he said, I felt flat and uninteresting. There was no inward zest. When others talked of God's grace, mercy, love, joy, peace, all those beautiful things, this person said, I just felt like I was being left out. It wasn't my experience. And so something was definitely wrong in my life, and I was trying to figure it out. And so as Peterson is listening to this man, you know, pour out his heart and, you know, just asking questions, he finally... Uh, told me something that he had never told anybody else, kind of a, a, a real disappointment in his life. A major relationship was, was just crushing him. And he had decided that he would simply live with it, not trying to feel sorry for himself, and get on the best he could. He had concluded that this other person was emotionally sick and improvement could not be hoped for. But still, how many know when you have a, a meaningful relationship, you still have hope? And he was still hoping beyond hope that something would change in that relationship. And he said, I decided then to be courageous in hoping. And Peterson now had listened to him for a number of weeks and was praying about it, thinking about it, and he was talking to this man, Warren. And one day he, he said to him, after a few weeks, he said, listen, Warren, I've been thinking, praying about what you've been sharing with me. And he said, you've kind of named that this person is sick. And that kind of implies that there's, that person has no responsibility in the situation. Because when you're sick, what can you do about it, right? You, you're actually a victim. And I think so often in our culture, it's easier just for us to tell, say to, about people that, well, they can't help themselves. They're sick. See, there's no, they have no responsibility in this. But he said, I want you to think, maybe there might be some medicine or therapy that would actually make this person better. He said, what happens if we actually named this influence or this influence in this person's life envy. That means that there's an actively malicious will at work and yet you have named your part of this courage. But he says, what happens if we named it sloth? Meaning that you're too lazy to enter into the hard work of prayer in a spiritual warfare. Now, how many of you know kind of direct? How many of you know, you're listening to Peterson tell you this stuff, you're kind of going, ouch, man, this guy's kind of pointing his finger you know, an area that has to change in your own life. And uh, anyways, he said, the moment he said that, there was almost immediate clarification. It was an identification that there was a problem here, but it was a problem that could be addressed. And when you have that in your mind, their hope starts to well up inside of you, like maybe we can deal with this thing. And he said, instead of this emotional deprivation, he said that, was, that certainly was not what was causing this flatness in his life, but maybe there was a malignant will that had enervated or devitalized or weakened his spirit. And with continued direction and encouragement, he kind of gave up the fight against flesh and blood. Because I think so often when we're dealing with a difficult person, we're seeing it as the person's the problem. 
rather than seeing it as a power behind the person, a principality and power. And he said he began to realize, he began to enter into this whole realm of prayer that actually brought real grace, real meaning, real joy, and real peace in his life. See, he was basically trapped by a wrong approach to the challenge and the difficulty in his life, and it was leaving him without any joy, without any hope, without any peace in his life. He was just defeated. And I think often in our Christian lives, we get to the stage where we just kind of give up. We just have no hope that things are going to change. And we just begin to despair, like there's no hope in this situation. We just, a lot of times, we just begin to suppress our emotions without having, and, and what, we, what we need to realize is you cannot suppress your emotions and not have a negative consequence happen to you. Either it's going to happen in relationship to other people or it's going to happen in physical health. You know, we have to address these things that are challenging us, causing us grief in our soul. We, we have to deal with that stuff. And so often it just seems easier to just stuff the thing. And yet it causes a lot of problems in our lives. You know, it takes wisdom, perseverance, and courage to actually address issues. How many know that's true? And one of the things that struck me as I was preparing for this week, this message, I was saying to myself, Lord, I really want to speak into the lives of our fathers. I really want to speak into the lives of men. I really feel like the culture has basically emasculated masculinity. You know, like people don't even know what it means to be a man. You know, there's, there's such a warped understanding of this concept today. And I want to revitalize God's viewpoint of what real manhood should look like. But as I was preparing and thinking about a certain text, I began to expand it. You know how that can happen when you're working on something. And I so expanded it that I began to include other verses. Then I realized this is not just a challenge to fathers. This is actually a challenge to every human being that's breathing. That you and I can actually live a life empowered by God's spirit, filling us with his love so that you and I actually become great impactors and influencers in the circle of sphere that God has brought our lives into. And so I began to look at this, uh, this church, you know, where there were so many difficulties. How many know the Corinthian church was really a dynamic church in so many ways, but it was so immature and so divisive? And I started thinking about it. You know, isn't that true in most marriages that part of the problem when you're first married, you're young, you're a bit immature, and so there's tension immediately, there's sometimes divisiveness, and a lot of the problems, actually, as you mature and, and grow up, you start realizing those were not even the issues that we should have been dealt, dealing with, you know? And a lot of times, it's just helping people to hang in there, things will get better, and if you begin to identify what's the real issues, you know, is it, I need just to grow up, and we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. And so I want to take a look here uh, at this church in Corinth that, you know, that really was evidencing a real lack of love. And by the way, probably the greatest definition of love in the entire Bible is found in 1 Corinthians. How many are thankful for an immature, divisive church that Paul wrote to, speaking into the life of all of their issues, giving us solutions and insight into the problems? I'm thankful for that. You know, when people say, I, I wish the church was like the first century church, I go, which one? You know, because there's, there's all kinds of them and they all have different issues. But fortunately, we're able to get insight into some of these issues that they were dealing with. And I want to take a look at what true love is, you know. What is true love? Because our culture has sure warped that concept. You know, we think it's an emotion. 
You know, we think it's goosebumps on goosebumps. We think it's, you know, I feel a certain way towards a person. I want to shatter that this morning and say, you know, when you really love somebody, they can actually be a pill. You know, they could be giving you grief today. But the fact that you're with them and loyal and standing beside them and working through issues, that's real love. And I think our culture doesn't understand that today. And so hopefully when we walk away from this message this morning, we're going, okay, my understanding of love has been changed a little bit. Hopefully it's been biblicized, if I can use a a new term, you know, like we've been transformed in our thinking because the Bible is changing the way we need to see what's going on around us. And so I want to take a look at these three expressions of living a life of love that will impact and influence the lives of other people. And the first one is expressed by having a giving heart, a liberal heart, a generous heart. You know, you can be doing the right thing, but actually building resentment on the inside. Isn't that true? I've watched that. You know, I'm doing what's right. And, you know, you can go to work sometimes and you see people working and they're doing the right thing, but they're filled with resentment. They're not happy about it. You know, isn't it different when you really love somebody and it's just a privilege and a joy to do the very same thing for that person? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? When you have a heart filled with love, it's amazing how easy it is to serve and help other people. It's just interesting. So we're going to look at here that love. You know, last week I talked about when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, God impacts, it's powerful, you become bold, you begin to share your faith. Isn't that great? But now I'm going to say something that's going to actually bring the other balancing side to it. And here it comes. Words alone without action, James says, is nothing. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 13, he said, look, even if you give all your money away to the poor and you have not love, it's just a bunch of noise. It has no eternal value. And so what God is actually looking at is not just our actions in the sense of external actions. God is looking at the attitude that's driving our actions. He's looking at the motivation of why I'm doing what I'm doing. So it's not enough just to say I love someone. It's not enough just to you know, do something, as we're going to look at maybe giving as one of the expressions of it. But God is even looking at the attitude. Why am I doing what I'm doing? This is very powerful. So... Why, you know, first of all, giving, God looks at, is giving of ourselves to God first. Step one. You know, Paul was writing to the Corinthians. He said, you guys need to learn about giving. But he says, I really rejoice when you gave of yourselves first. You see, once you give of yourself first to God, and once you give of yourself first to someone else, it's amazing how your heart just follows along and wants to do neat things for other people. So giving is actually measured, you know, not by monetary currency. See, that's what we kind of think in our mind, giving's about money. I'm saying, no, giving is more than that. Money is only an equivalent of what? Our time, our energy, and our skill, and our work. That's all it is. But what God is looking at is, God, you know, giving has to be measured by the way we're going about doing things for others. That's what I'm trying to get at this morning in communicating. Unfortunately, the predominant expression in our society today is more about me and getting than about others and giving. How many say that's probably true? As a culture, it's more, we're more locked in about getting things and we're more locked in about what's my needs being met. But when you think about how God looks at love and giving, it's more about others and it's more about giving. It, how many are beginning to see it's the exact opposite of where our culture is at right now? 
And so when you and I start living a life of love where it's not about us, it's about the other person. It's not about getting, it's about giving. How many already know that's radically different? Already you're getting people's attention because they're all looking at what's the angle? What are you getting out of this? How, how many people, that's the way they think. What are you going to get out of this? When they see that you get absolutely nothing for doing it, it creates something inside of them. Like, why are you doing this? It raises all these questions. It's giving us opportunity to really minister into the brokenness that so many people are experiencing today. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, you know, wanted to encourage all of his workers around the world. But how many know, you know, they didn't have email back then, you know, they didn't, couldn't just text a message. You know how much cheaper that would have been? You know, I had to go to an office. You had to send a cablegram. And every word you used, they charged you per word. So he didn't want to be extravagant, but he wanted to encourage his workers. So he was trying to think of what to say. And so he got it down to the, at the end. He said he figured out a long cablegram would have cost too much money. So he said only one word. You know what the word was? Others. Others. Isn't that amazing? He's basically saying, guys, it's all about what we're doing for others. It's all about understanding that my service to God is how I serve the people around me. And God is evaluating it that way. So giving is probably one of the most important expressions of love. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, we pick it up here. I'm going to go through up to verse 14, so you may want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatians churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the people you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Do you know what I find fascinating? This is chapter 16. Does anybody know at the top of your head, what does chapter 15 talk about? It's the, one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible on the resurrection. The whole chapter is devoted to it. So what do we have here? We have the Apostle Paul moving from a future hope now to a very present reality. In other words, if our, our Christian life cannot be that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We can't just focus on tomorrow and what God's going to do for us. We need to be thinking about what can we do in the now to help people. That's really important. You know, love is seen as uh, a practical expression and we see that. You know, child psychiatrist Robert Coles, he was studying in Harvard. He was uh, doing a study. You know, a lot of these academics, they love doing studies. Uh, this was back quite a few years ago. And he, he decided he wanted to compare the impact that finances or riches had on children. In other words, what was it like? What was the difference to live between a poor home and a rich home? And how did that influence and impact children? Uh, it's an interesting study. So he decides to take his two sons during the summer, and they fly to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And, you know, in Rio de Janeiro, there's, there's a whole section of that city with a lot of poor people. And, you know, remember last year, a couple years ago, a few years ago now, we had the Olympics in Brazil. Remember that? And then they had it in Rio. And then you saw there was a picture of Christ standing on top of, in the harbor there, and his arms outreached. How many have ever seen that picture? You know, Christ is standing in the harbor. It's, you know, it's Christ our Redeemer. His hands are outstretched. Beautiful. But facing that harbor, there's a mountainside. And as you, further up the mountainside you go, the poorer the people become, you know. And eventually you get to a certain elevation, no electricity, no heating, no plumbing, no running water, no medical aid. 
And so from every vantage point from that Heinecone mountainside, they could look out across the harbor and they could see Christ's arms outstretched. And so the, the two teenage sons, you know, they wondered, does Jesus have any special concerns for the poor? Because now they had moved from the rich and they were way up to the poor. And so they decided to ask one of, some of the people in that area. One of the ladies said, can you imagine Jesus Christ living in one of the homes where the rich live? Can you imagine boasting how many cars and boats he had and how much money he had? Can you see that, she said? She goes, I clean for them. I know how much they own. But you know there's one piece of property they can't buy. Heaven. When I look at Christ over there across our city, I think about how hard his life was. He was crucified, even if he was God. No, he was actually crucified because he was God. You know, I cannot figure out why I'm so poor, but I know this, Jesus is for all of us, rich and poor alike. And the exciting thing is he's living within my heart. But those who killed him did so a long time ago, no one remembers them. It's best to remember, and this I do, he loves us, the poor. The big shots who ran the country when he lived cared nothing about him, nor us, the poor, and they are all gone. I tell my children, this is lesson number one. It's the people who care that are remembered. As a matter of fact, in a world that values how much we have, God values how much you care. And that's usually expressed in tangible ways. It's expressed in the way we give our time, our energy, our life to other people. So what are some of the things we learn from this few verses, these few texts? I put down that we are to set aside a sum of money in keeping with our income and give it to the Lord. It says that, you know? Now, this isn't a sermon on tithing, but I could say that the proportion that we get should at least be a tithe when you think about it, because even in the Old Testament they tithe, and even before the law they were tithing. So there is a standard that God has in mind, okay? But let me move on. What, why were they giving? They were not only giving to keep their own ministries going, but they were giving to the poor. They were taking up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem who were going through a famine. And why this was so particularly gratifying to the apostle Paul was because he was an apostle to the Gentiles and the Jewish people were suspicious of the Gentiles. They were suspicious that God had done any work in their life. But here they were now impoverished physically and yet they had a tremendous heritage, a great deep spiritual heritage that now the Gentiles were benefiting from and now they and their financial riches could take up a collection and bless these poor Jewish people in Jerusalem. How many know the best argument against if you really have a transformed life is if you actually become a giver? Because a lot of people, their God is money. And when you can part with your money, it probably tells me you got somebody else ruling in your heart. It's just a thought. You'll think about it, I know. Let me move on to point number two. What Paul taught to the Corinthians, he had also taught to other churches. Notice he had said he had also taught the same things to the Galatians. Paul's standard was the same for everybody. The Bible standard is the same for everybody. There's not first and second and third class Christians. There's only one class. Number three, we see that those who had more were to help those who didn't have enough. Do you realize 
And this is so amazing to me. The ability to, you know, secure resources, the ability to live in a prosperous, influenced, affluential realm, to have the education we have. Why do you think God does that for us? So you and I could be a blessing to other people. Do you realize that? God gives some of us more to help those that have less. And if we haven't figured that out yet, we're really poor spiritually. God is trying to teach us something. Whatever God blesses you with, you know, music or, you know, fiscal wisdom or, you know, some people are gifted communicators or whatever gift that they have, that they're to use these gifts to help other people. Isn't that beautiful? That's the way God designed it. And others are to help each other. Uh, as a matter of fact, God continually, continuously reminds us from Scripture that he loves the poor and we have a responsibility to the poor. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And by the way, he pays good interest. And he will reward them for what they have done. Isn't that true? Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt to their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Let me move on. So I, I put down the real issue in our lives may simply be, how much can God entrust or give to you without ruining you? You know, a lot of people say, I wish what, I had a little bit more. God says, if I gave you a little bit more, it would wreck you. Maybe he's only giving you what you can handle. And until you learn to be gracious and liberal and generous, to allow his love to fill your heart where that becomes something you want to do. You know, everyone tells me, you know, when I have more money, I'll give more. It doesn't work that way, folks. That's, that's a wrong way of thinking. You start by giving more now, and God sees that he can trust you with it, and then he gives you more to give. I'm just changing the whole equation for you. So every time people say, you know, Pastor, if I won this, I'd give this, I'm going, no, you wouldn't, in my mind, because I'm going, you're not doing it now with the little you have. You've got to learn to start giving somewhere, folks. We all have to learn that lesson. Let me move on to the second one, and it's our passion for ministry, or passion for serving. Our passion for serving. What motivates us to serve? You know, you can, you can be motivated to serve because you feel like you get something back. But I've, I've learned, I've been a pastor for a long time now, 37 years or 38 years. You know what I've discovered? Not everybody's happy when you're <laughs> serving them. How many have ever had those moments in your life when you're doing something nice for a person and really don't appreciate what you're doing? Anybody had that experience? What does that make you feel like wanting to do? Oh, that's it, stop, right? That's an honest answer. It's the truth, isn't it? But can I help us continue on doing it anyways? You go, how do you keep doing it? Here's the little switch you can make in your mind. I'm really ultimately doing it for Jesus. And some people, you know, appreciate what's happening and others don't, but it doesn't stop me because in my mind, I'm actually doing it for Jesus. So it's amazing how much you can keep loving and giving when you're doing it for Christ. And if you see people that you're ministering to as if you were seeing Jesus when you're doing it, even when they don't appreciate it, actually, I think that's probably going to get a bigger eternal reward at that moment than if they were really thankful. Probably get a more diminished reward. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not the one that's handing out the rewards, but I'm just saying it's important we understand that. Notice in verse 5 here, it says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend a winter so you can help me on my journey wherever I go. In other words, he's, you're going to help me to move forward this ministry. For I do not want you to, to see you now and make only a passing visit with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Now, I just put down 
a number of things that I noticed about having a passion for ministry. The first is what we see in the heart of a person who's involved in service, the, the actual concern of what I call a ministry heart. And everywhere Paul went, he could see the needs. How many know the needs are great today? You know, they're just everywhere. Everybody has needs. And, you know, there's only so much you can do. But you get a sense from the Apostle Paul, he wants to minister to as many people as possible. You've noticed that. And we have to figure out how to do it and pace ourselves and not burn out and all the rest of it. But, you know, I believe our first ministry always starts with our family. Okay, so if you're neglecting your family and to minister to somebody else, you need to retool, come circle the wagon, come back and go, okay, here's my first ministry. How am I doing with my spouse? How am I doing with my kids? And then you move extending beyond that. You know, I don't know if you notice this. I kind of hang around Red Deer a lot. I don't really feel like I have to be everywhere else ministering. I feel like I would be neglecting you. But there are times I leave. You know, I'll be in Germany here in October. In November, I'll be in India, you know, a week each teaching. So that's good too because it opens my heart and it helps us as a church continually move beyond ourselves. How many think getting outside of ourselves is important? And when you see the needs of people around you and some of them are far greater, you know, you start realizing, wow, we need to do more to help other people, you know, and it expands your soul and I think that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. Then we, we see here, uh, anytime you're having an effective ministry, you're going to have opposition. No matter what you do, no matter what place in life you're, you're doing it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a nurse, you're a teacher, you're a politician, whatever realm you're in, pastor, uh, you know, if you are living the Christian life, you could be, you know, a, a person in retail at a store. If you're really living for Jesus and you are effectively ministering his love to people, I will promise you, you are going to run into some difficulty. You go, pastor, why would I want to do it then? And I'll tell you that in a moment. But I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to run into it. Because there's always pressures in effective ministry. Remember it says there was a great door open to him, but many adversaries. And you say, why is that? Because anytime you're effective, you're changing the status quo. And change really rattles people. They don't like that because some people are benefiting with the way things are. Isn't that true? You know, and, and so if you're helping somebody, usually that person is... You know, many times they're being taken advantage of by someone else. So you're going to run into some issues. And I just wrote this down in my mind. I said, there are often pressures experienced. Let's take parents. Parenting. Is there any pressures in parenting? How many here are parents? Any pressures? Okay. Many of you are raising your hand. Okay. Pastors. I can answer as a pastor. My hand's up. There are pressures. Teachers. Are there pressures there, Rachel, in teaching? Amanda, you're going to get there. Oh, there's going to be pressures, right, girls? You know, if you're a social worker, do you think there's going to be pressure there? Of course there's going to be pressure there. What about nursing? The guy keeps hitting the same button. He wants you in there every minute, right? You were a nurse. You know what it's like. There were pressures there. No matter what job you have, are there pressures in your work? Yes, there is. You see, there's going to be pressure. And when, you're, when you have a ministry heart and you're helping people, it really intensifies. Look at Paul's list of pressures. I wrote them down and he puts them in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance. Do you know if you're going to make it in your vocation, you have to endure? Yes. Amen, Rachel? Yeah, that was a tough year this last year. Oh, she was crying sometimes. It was tough, right? But you know what? In troubles. Was there troubles? How about hardships? What about distresses? In beatings. I haven't had that one yet. I've had a few people threaten to kill me. No, I'm serious. I had people threaten to kill me. 
I had a guy walk into my office one time with a knife. There was nobody else in the whole building, and they said, I came here to kill you. I said, well, who sent you? He said, Satan. I said, well, then you're not going to kill me because God's greater than Satan. Bye. Now, anyways, I started sharing the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was wild. I've had interesting moments in my life, but I haven't been beaten yet. Imprisonment, not yet. Listen, not yet. Who knows if this country doesn't change? I keep preaching when I am. I'll be there. Riots in hard sleep. And hard work, sorry. Hard work, I know about that. Sleepless nights, I know about that. And hunger in purity and understanding and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and sincere love in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Boy, I don't know. This Paul's gospel and some of the gospel in North America sounds different. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. I think we need to learn this one. You see, learning to be content with what we've got. What a great lesson that is. Then he goes on, why, why, would, why, why, why are we going to put up with all of this? You know, a lot of us, I'm quitting. I'm not going to do this. Why am I going to put up with difficulty, hardships, struggles? You say, why, pastor? Why should I do this? The same reason Jesus went on the cross, for the joy set before you. What's the joy that Jesus had? I'm looking at his joy right now. You and I are his joy. You see, when you and I pour out our lives and serve other people and give ourselves away, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You are enriching your life and enriching the life of others. But whenever you just live for yourself, your world gets really small and all of the problems become about you. That's what happens. And I don't want that for you. I want you to live an abundant life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. The abundant life, folks, is not that I get a trip or vacation or travel here or do this. That's the world's thinking. Here's the real way of living the abundant life. The abundant life is when you and I are laying ourselves down, pouring our lives out for our children, for our students, for our patients, for our parishioners. And you know what happens? We see God do miracles through our lives. And you know, I saw one about three weeks ago and I was standing at the front door and I watched as one of the families in our church was reunited after they were separated and I saw them coming holding hands and I almost lost it at the front door. I almost wept. That was so moving to me. It was so moving to see how God can do beautiful things in people's lives. You see, but you know, so often he says, he says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection to you, but you're withholding yours from us. Isn't that sad when you pour out your life and then the person you're loving is not responding? And you know, a lot of parents, you got tears in your eyes because that's been your experience with your own children. Isn't that sad? You can, some of you are real quiet here, but it's the truth. Young people, can I just say this? You're young. You've got a lot to learn. I'm not trying to be rude about it. I'm just telling you the truth. When you have children of your own, you'll understand a lot of things you don't understand today. You're just not there yet. But our culture so values youth. We elevate young people to such a high degree, but yet we don't have the experience. And yet when I go to India, what a different world. They, <clears throat> the Asians honor older people. And that's actually wisdom. See, they're wiser than we are. We honor young people. Young people are, need to be affirmed and encouraged, but they also need to be disciplined when they're wrong. It's the truth. And we'll, I'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> Let me move on here uh, to the third point. 
in, their, in our ability to nurture others. So the three things that express a loving life. One, I have a giving liberal heart. Number two, I have a passion to serve others. Number three, I have a heart to nurture, mentor, care for, build up, strengthen other people. You know, one of the greatest expressions of nurturing comes from parenting. Every parent is a nurturer. Every parent is raising up this little child and helping them, you know, by affirming them, teaching them, challenging them, and yes, even disciplining them. Can I just say this? When you and I do not discipline our children, that's not a loving thing. And I'm going to show you why it's not loving. You know, sometimes we have to explain these things, but we're going to get there. Let me, let me just, before I say that, let me just read these two verses. This was the verse that I started my sermon on for the guys. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Okay, now I'm going to bring all of this home. I'm going to show you how all this ties together. It's interesting that people who are spiritually awake can handle what's about to happen. But you know the story of the disciples in the garden I think is a metaphor of life. Remember Jesus said, what did he tell them when he was going into the garden of Gethsemane? What did he say to them? He said, watch and pray. What did they do? They fell asleep, okay? Now, how many know when you're going through a difficult time, you get depressed? You're emotionally low. You want to shut down, isn't that true? You're tired out. You have no energy. Isn't that true? I'm just describing it. That's the way it is. That's what happens. Can I, you know, sometimes you have to do the opposite of what you feel. See, we're so driven by our emotions. We don't always, you know, one of the things that Jesus says is, listen, you got to pray. You have to, you have to pray. Because what's about to happen is going to be even worse than what you feel right now. And that's where a lot of us, we're not going to, you know, we don't, we're not on guard. See, we're not alert. We don't, we don't focus on that. We need to be spiritually awake and alert. So here's what happens. When I am praying, God is awakening me and he wants to speak into my life. So there's two things I need to develop. I need to, I, I need to be uh, vigilant because I know a battle is about to take place. See, Jesus knew what was coming ahead. How many here, you, can't, you have no idea what's coming ahead? See, I don't really know exactly what's coming ahead, but I need to be alert. And then the other day I was reading in my Bible, and I, you, know, you know I've been doing a tremendous study on Proverbs, and I, I came across something I had written down the year before. I, ri- I wrote notes in my Bible, and it was found in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 5. Listen to what it says. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Now what's he asking? Set my heart on what? Well, prudence. How many know what prudence is? Okay, maybe some of you. You know what I did? I said, I don't know if I fully grasp the meaning of this word. See, a lot of times when we're reading our Bibles, this is what we do. We read a verse like this, we just read the next verse. Now, the Bible says we're supposed to meditate on God's word day and night. Meditating means we've got to slow down and think about what we're reading. So I just looked it up in the dictionary. This is a real simple exercise. Look what it said. It's derived from a Latin word meaning to see ahead. Prudence means you have the ability to see ahead. In other words, you're thinking in the, in the future. You're not living in the moment. Our culture today lives in the moment. How many say that's true? We're not thinking about what this decision is going to have bearing on what's going to happen next. And the successful people in life 
are never just in the moment. They're always planning ahead. To see ahead. It is the ability to govern and discipline ourselves by use of reason and good judgment. That's prudence. Look at that. It's the ability to govern and discipline ourselves. It's the ability to have self-discipline. It's the ability to use my head to think about what's about to happen and use good judgment, not just go charging in there. Now, let me explain something with children. Children don't have prudence. They don't have self-discipline. When a child is really young, why you need parents is because you have to be disciplined by someone who has more prudence, more wisdom, more understanding, more experience. And what a parent is trying to do with their child is to help develop the ability in the child to discipline themselves. So after a while, a parent should never be disciplining their children. You have taught them as a child to become self-disciplined. That's the goal of parenting, that the child is maturing and becoming self-disciplined. Why? So that that child doesn't do stupid stuff. Right? You know, how many have ever asked a teenager, why did you do that? And what's the teenager's response? I don't know. And you know what? They actually don't know. See, you think they're lipping you off. They're not. They just have no idea why they did it. They didn't think. They don't have that ability. Hey, when you're a teacher, there's no use yelling at them. They just don't know what they're doing anyways. Don't get too excited. They're just not thinking. Your job, you have to still discipline them, though. It's very important. Now, next little text there, it says we need to stand firm. What does it mean to stand firm? Well, you see, the Bible keeps teaching us something. It says, don't, don't go out and fight on your own, in your own strength. We just sang it this morning, right? How do, we, how do we fight the battle? We stand still. We stand still and see the salvation of our God. We pray, we worship God, and we show love towards people. We overcome evil by doing good. We stand, we stand firm. Listen to what happens when you're an immature person. It says, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. You know what God's goal is for you and me? To grow up. See, God wants us to mature, but mature to what? Until we come to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God wants us to become Christ-like. He wants us to become godly. So the journey in the Christian life is to mature and grow up. It's to you and I to become more like Jesus. If you read Romans 8, 28, and 9, that's what it's telling you. All of these things are going to work together for good to do what? To conform us into the image of Christ. Verse 4, it says, then we will no longer be infants. Now, now he's describing a spiritual state. What does infancy look like in the Christian life? Well, we're tossed to and fro by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. So that tells me that you and I have to be discerning. And so right now, it's amazing how gullible most Christians are. We just read everything and think it's the truth. Folks, we can't do that. And I'm gonna just say this. If you're reading a whole bunch of re religious books, and as good as they are, and not reading your Bible, you're, you got, you're, you're going at it totally backwards. Put all the books away for right now. Don't touch one for three months and just read your Bible for three months. It'll straighten your head right back up. I'm serious, you know? Because I, I read stuff all the time. I'm going, this is really bonkers. Where in the world did they come up with this idea? You know, I'm, I'm even, I, ha, I'm, I'm, I have to send an email back to the last Israeli guide because she says, Pastor, I need to trust you. And she, she's asking me a question. One of the people there on the thing is telling her something. She goes, I, this isn't jiving. Can you check this for me? She's asking me to do the research to send it back to her. So, you know, she's because I'm reading what he said. And I'm going, no, this is not going to be good. I'm going to have to straighten that out. Because that's what people do. It says, instead, speaking the truth, how? In love. Can I just say this? A lot of Christians, we, we are actually upset about things and we're speaking the truth. 
but we're not doing it in a very loving way. We've got to change that, folks. We've got to change that because you know what you're doing is you're alienating the people you're trying to win. Just a thought. And number two, we're not fighting against people. Who's our enemy? Not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So they're deceived. So, you know, when people are in a, in a certain state, why argue with them? I'm just going, this is pointless. You're not going to have any sort of fruitful engagement here because they're blind to this. So you better start praying for them and, and loving them. And basically, by the way we treat them, even though they're treating us poorly, we're treating them good. They're going, what's going on here? I wouldn't treat you like this. The way I'm treating you, I treat you I, I'm expecting you to push back. It says... When we speak the truth in life, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Now let me, uh, we're challenged to be courageous and strong. You know, what is courage? An attitude or response of facing and dealing with anything recognized as dangerous, difficult, or painful instead of withdrawing from it. When I read the Bible, how many times does God say, be strong and what? and very courageous. God's calling us to be courageous, even in the midst of the greatest challenges in our life. You know what's our tendency when we run up against difficulty? What do we want to do? We want to cower. We want to get discouraged. We want to run away. We want to withdraw. You know what God says? I want you to stand there and be courageous. That's hard to do sometimes, right? Sure it is. Yeah. Wow. We're told not to be discouraged. Discouragement is simply to be deprived of courage and confidence. It means to be disheartened. God is challenging us, listen, don't be disheartened today. I don't know what all your troubles are. I know some of them. There's some great challenges in this room. And I'm going to just tell you, don't be discouraged. You say, why is that? We sang it. You know, I've got all of these things surrounding me, but God's surrounding me, right? You know, how does that go, the line? It looks like I'm being surrounded, right? But I'm surrounded by you. It looks like I'm being surrounded by cancer, broken relationships, wayward children, but I'm surrounded by you, Lord. It looks like there's an army coming to get me, but God opened my servant's eyes because we are surrounded by you. We need to know that this morning. So I could be discouraged this morning, but God is telling me to be strong and very courageous. Amen? That's true. But let's close with this. We hear the summary of the whole thing. He says, do everything in love. Because you see, no matter what I do, I can can have the faith to move a mountain, but it says, if I don't have love, nada. If I give my body to be burned up as a martyr, but I don't have love, nothing. I could give all my money away to the poor, but if I don't have love, if I'm just doing it because you know, I'm just, that's the right thing to do, but I don't have love. You see what it all boils down to. You gotta come back to this thing. We need to have a loving heart. Well, what is love? I'm gonna close with this now. Love is what? Love is? It does not, does not, it is not, it does not, it is not, it is not, it keeps no records, love does not, 
but rejoices with? It always, 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 always. Very good. Does that sound like what the world is dishing out, what love is? No. Okay. Let's get it straight. All right? Let's stand. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? Last Sunday was fun. This is challenging. Anybody say, this is challenging. I'm having an altar call. I'm the first one here. (laughs) Because I know I need to be more loving. Anybody else feel that? I need to be more loving. I need to let the Holy Spirit so rule and reign in my life that the fruit of that is love. How many are with me? How many say, Lord, I want to be a love slave? Your love slave. Lord, I want your love to so fill my heart that it's going to transform my life. I want to be so full of love that it changes me and everybody around me. Who's up for that? Should we pray for that? Should we ask God to so fill our hearts that we will literally be changed in our marriages and in our families and at our workplace until finally somebody's going, there is a revival of love happening in Red Deer. All right. Let's ask. Let's say, Lord, fill my heart with your spirit. Fill my heart with your love. Give me such an explosion of love in my heart that I can overcome evil. Lord, just fill my heart with your love so that I can love my wife more than I ever have or my husband more than I ever have before. Lord, help me to have so much love that I love my children more than I ever have before. Lord, help me to love my coworkers like I never have before. Help me to love my students, my patients, my parishioners, whatever it is. You can put your thing right there. Lord, just fill me with your love. Give me an explosion of divine love in my heart that I will not rejoice in what is evil, but I will delight in what is right and good. Lord, help me to be strong and stand firm and not cower in fear. I pray this morning that your love will cast out all fear, all fear in the name of Jesus. I pray that your love would give me such confidence this morning that I can go out like little King David before he was the king and slay the Goliaths in my life right now. Every problem right now can be brought down, Lord, with a loving spirit. Help me to overcome the evil that's come my way in the spirit of love. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.